This is Action Potential. I'm your host, Sahan Ranamukarachi, and we welcome you to the show. Our goal is to propagate ideas that can revolutionize medical care delivery. Join us on a transformative journey as we amplify the voices of thought leaders, explore the cutting edge of remote physiological monitoring, and ignite a wave of positive change. Hello, everyone. Welcome to podcast number four for the Action Potential podcast. I'm your host, Sahan Ranamukarachi, and I'm joined by Dr. Craig Beavers today. Craig, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here to talk about all the intersects that we can have uh, have potential with this uh, adventure you're on. So Thank you very much. Uh, With the Action Potential podcast, exploring the cutting edge of remote physiological monitoring, who better to talk to than a clinical pharmacist who's in uh, in the field every day um, on the cardiorenal care delivery side? Um, Craig has been the former chair of uh, the American College of Cardiology. He's a professor at University of Kentucky College of Pharmacy. there's an impressive resume to Craig that people should know. Craig, do you want to tell us and our audience about you? Yeah, sure. I'm humbled that you say that, but I, I'm a cardiovascular clinical pharmacist who has, has alluded to, who worked closely with the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association and the American College of Clinical Pharmacy, is, is to name a few, but have you know, worked in both the clinical space and research in terms of implementation science and looking at, you know, how do we get patients to be on therapies and be consistent with therapies and adherent to therapies that we know that are important in a crowded market, whether it be, you know, addressing polypharmacy or the sequelae of polypharmacy, such as adverse drug events, but also, you know, knowing, for example, in heart failure, which is a space that I work pretty closely in, uh, or in cardio-oncology, how do we make sure that patients are able to tolerate uh, the guideline-directed medical therapy and do that safely? Because we know that there's mortality and quality of life benefits if we are able to do that. Yeah, lots to dig into uh, there, Craig. Uh, how did you end up becoming a clinical pharmacist? What was what were some of the early uh, influences, early drivers that guided you to make that decision? And And along the way, as you learn more information, how did you get more and more focused on heart failure, uh, cardio-oncology? Sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> I was always wanted to be a pharmacist, and I don't know where that came from because I did not have anybody in my family that was a pharmacist or related to that nature, to the medical field. And so funny, when I went to pharmacy school, like I felt like everybody in my class had like their parents owned a pharmacy or their grandparents owned a pharmacy or something related to that. And I'm like, why? Well, none of those. Uh, but I, I knew I liked the medical field and chemistry and science and that process. So I, I wanted to do something in that field. And that's how I landed on, on pharmacy. But then throughout my training and education, I realized how much more there was to the field of pharmacy and pharmacology beyond what traditionally people think of as community-based pharmacy or working out uh, you know, in your community or owning a, a store, a shop, or whatever that may be. Um, and really, there's a lot of roles in terms of research, in terms of hospital-based and clinical-based and, and activities. Um, and so as I progressed through my you know, professional schooling years in the College of Pharmacy, I, I learned about different options and really chose that I wanted to do clinical pharmacy. But then on a more personal note, my family uh, 
suffered a lot of issues related to cardiovascular disease. I had a dad who had complications to uncontrolled hypertension, um, and it really became a, a struggle for all of us and, and personally. And so that's where my passion and love about cardiovascular disease came into play is really trying to prevent the same adventure that happened to myself and my family to, from occurring and, and really educating and being passionate about managing and treating patients. And, and through that, you, you get exposed to a variety of different cardiovascular disease states. And, and obviously because heart failure does have a lot of pharmacotherapy involved, um, that's kind of how I ended up in that trajectory. And of course, the nice thing and is you get into that space, there's a lot of overlap with kidney disease, there's a lot of overlap with diabetes, there's overlap with oncology. And so then you really get to, to field into other areas. And then clearly there's an ischemic component. So patients that have heart attack, et cetera. So there, there's a nice, nice overlap, but it, because it is so pharmacotherapy focused, there's a lot of drug therapies and, and comorbidities. It, it makes a great field for a pharmacist. Yeah, you mentioned the polychronic aspect of it. You must be seeing such complex patients um, all, all across the board because of all those comorbidities that you mentioned. Um, and what, what I'm particularly interested in is a lot of the therapies that are used to treat a lot of those conditions are quite common. So like as a, as a clinical pharmacist, uh, what, where, do you, where do you practice? Like what's, what's a day in the life of Craig, uh, Dr. Sure. Craig Beavers? And, and how do you, who do you interact with in order to provide that polypharmacy to a lot of these patients who have very complex polychronic conditions? Yeah, and to your point about being complex polychronic conditions, it really does a team, take a team to do these things. And I'm very pro-based around the concept of team-based care. You know, it takes, you know, our physician colleagues, both cardiologists and or you know, their primary care physician or whoever else that is interacting, depending on their disease state to, to manage these patients. Um, and then we're working with, you know, advanced nursing staff or advanced practice uh, nurses or physician assistants or, or, or clinic nurses, uh, our technicians, et cetera. Um, and so we really do work closely to optimize the patient and do things that are important. And so obviously my role is how do we make sure they maintain and stay on their drug therapy? And that can be, you know, avoidance of side effects, you know, getting them to the right dose, making sure they can afford it. Of course, I'm based in the United States. We have, we do not have universal health care. There's different challenges that we have to, to work through uh, from that standpoint. And so how do we put all those things in combined and working in the team-based capacity? So typically our day is a, a team-based clinic and depending on what the patient's there for, if they're there for med titration, it's primarily me that's running that process. You know, even if it's not, we're still interviewing the patient, providing education and, and support where needed, you know, because the patient may need, you know, patient assistance in terms of getting their medications afforded, or we may need to talk to their nephrologist because we are wanting to start a therapy that, you know, will help their kidneys, but their kidney function has been fluctuating and, and, and questionable and, and making them feel comfortable with the plan that we have in place from that standpoint. So really it is a team-based effort. And then part of that is also connecting back to, you know, if, you know, who their primary care is and educating them what our plan is. And then I feel the onus to also talk to their community-based pharmacists and partner with them because a lot of times that's where med errors can occur because they don't realize that we've stopped therapy or changed therapy or, you know, and we want to make sure that there's a clear plan and that everybody is in agreement so that the patient is successful uh, when they leave. And then, you know, of course, part of my day in life is figuring out, you know, ways to do that 
on a, a larger scale and working with groups across the country to, to do that and look at, you know, adherence and implementation and how do we make the system better for, for folks. Your involvement in, in groups like the American College of Cardiology, what's the impact uh, that you strive to achieve through through participating in those type of groups? Is it more towards uh, figuring out, uh, you know, best practices uh, in certain kind of uh, populations within uh, cardiovascular disease? Can you talk us, t- tell us a sure. little bit about, uh, you know, how you translate your clinical work on a daily basis to the work that you do with these groups um, that are that have much broader reach? Yeah, no, I think the the beauty of clinical work and, and being engaged in a process or a system is you identify where there are challenges and struggle. You know, everybody has, you know, their social determinants health that we're working through. We're working through, you know, complexity of regimens, you know, the healthcare delivery system, whatever that may be. And I think the connection and networking you have with these organizations allows you to meet other people who are doing similar things. And then, create a unified voice to help solve the problem, whether that be research or patient advocacy or education or even governmental change, right? And determining, okay, here's the things that we constantly run into. You know, I think a great example in the United States related to our insurance structure, for example, is prior authorizations and prior authorization of forms so that people are not having to wait or have to go through the process or being denied access to therapies from that standpoint. Uh, but even to the point of just understanding, you know, do medication adherence devices work? Or, for example, you know, the hesitancy you know, related to what we're talking about here today, the hesitancy of doing guideline-directed medical therapy and getting patients on there is, you know, how do we know that it's safe and that they can get lab monitoring and follow up with it and, and meet the titration parameters? And so what are what are the solutions that we have or that we need to be able to remove those barriers? Could you... Uh... That's that's uh, we we definitely need to dig into that. Could you tell us a little bit about you know the guidelines uh, for heart failure that kind of extends into chronic kidney disease? To your point, the polypharmacy aspect is super interesting in that there are so many therapies already available. How do you help your clinicians uh, practice or caring physicians make those kind of decisions? on which therapies are the right ones for that specific patient? Because, you know, we're trying to as quickly as possible move away from one size fits all kind of approaches, but there are guidelines that guidelines that talk about broad categories of therapies that patients should be on. One thing that I saw recently, Craig, is, you know, heart failure, reduced ejection fraction guidelines, where you could start to see when patients have different comorbid conditions, certain medications become contraindicated, certain ones need to be, you know, exercised cautiously to to be prescribed, it becomes very complex. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the classes of therapies that are part of guidelines to start off and which ones uh, are particularly challenging to titrate as we get, uh, you know, um, concomitant kidney disease in heart failure patients? Maybe as an example. And to even answer that question, I'm going to back up a step and even talk about, you know, there's various different types of heart failure and how we arrive at what is the reason that the patient has heart failure to begin with, you know, is is very, you know, heart failure is a syndrome. Essentially, it's where the body can't meet the metabolic supply or excuse me, the body can't meet the metabolic demand of its needs because the heart is not pumping effectively or efficiently um, either 
the um, you know either do ischemia or the ventricle can't contract very well, whatever, there's a variety of different reasons. There's lots of different comorbid disease states that can contribute to that or reasons that the patient is um, having those issues. And so that's part of it as well. So it could be they've had a heart attack or they're not perfusing well, or they have kidney disease or they have diabetes that's causing uh, th these issues, et cetera, at hand. Um, and so that's kind of the first step. And then when you determine that they have for heart failure, and especially if you're referring to heart failure with reserved or reduced ejection fraction, excuse me, with reduced ejection fraction, we have a lot of agents at our disposal that have been shown to increase mortality, or excuse me, decrease mortality, improve quality of life. Um, and a lot of those include our, our RAS inhibitors, such as ACE inhibitors, ARBs, uh, angiotensin receptor blockers, angiotensin receptor nephrolysin inhibitors, or ARNIs, and we have mineral corticoid receptor antagonists or, or ARAs, aldosterone receptor antagonists. So that would be like your spironolactones, et cetera. And then beta blockers, of course. And then there's a slew of other agents that uh, are, are at the disposal that we would use. And, and the interesting thing is a lot of those agents either they're helpful in terms of improving um, ventricular function and improving or and muting the RAS system. However, those things are also tied into the, the perfusion of the kidney, which eventually over time help the kidney, but do have the risk of short-term you know, risk to changing the, the serum creatinine in the process, and then also impact electrolytes, et cetera, that we get concerned about in, in terms of monitoring. And of course, they also lower your blood pressure, which you know, if you're too hypotensive, that can make the kidneys angry as well. And so you really have to really understand the hemodynamics of the patient. Every patient is different and understanding what's going on with them and how you're going to add therapies and adjust therapies. And then, of course, the other new set of agents that we add are the SGLT2 inhibitors, which are also renal protective, but, you know, that's additional therapies on there that we use to monitor uh, and in theory should have a renal benefit. So, but you have to take that also in the construct that has alluded to the original point, they have other disease states and comorbidities. And so you have to manage the disease state around with those. So you have other drugs that may be doing similar things or causing similar problems, or they may have acute indications like they get sick and an infection, you have to manage that. And there may be something that messes their kidneys up there or causes hyperkalemia or, or something to that nature. So, you know, there, there's all these things are at, at hand uh, that you're working through. And, and so it goes back to the patient complexity. So we have sets of medications that are guideline recommended, and we should try and strive to get those agents on, but it's how do you do it in a manner that is safe and effective, given that they are going to be helpful in the long term, but they have short-term sequelae or adverse events, et cetera. Craig, uh, in listing those medications, um, the ACEs, ARBs, ARNIs, MRAs, um, SGLT2s, beta blockers, basically those are kind of the classes of medications that you're, you're dealing with. And if you double-click into any of them, there's probably a whole host of medications, options that you you as a clinical pharmacist have to prescribe these to heart failure patients. And if they are now diabetic or they have other kind of conditions, they probably have a whole host of medications mm -hmm. such as insulin that they're taking on top of that. Um, you mentioned needing to uh, watch patients, particularly from a monitoring standpoint, to um, to understand how to make therapy decisions. How do patients feel about taking all of these different types of medications? And what kind of support do they need to be convinced that those individual medications all collectively help their disease state to live a better life? Yeah, so 
you know, and to the point I also I didn't I neglected to mention even things that we use to manage symptoms like diuretics, you know, which also impact electrolytes and kidney function. And then of course, sometimes patients get put on digoxin and so forth, which also has concerns about electrolytes and kidney function and those types of things. Um, and, and there's other agents too, but uh, you know, I think the big thing is they want to know that clearly what the impact is in improving their life and quality of life, but how are we eliminating, you know, the risk of adverse effects because you are doing a lot of concomitant therapy. You are adding additional agents that are taking multiple drugs and, and how do we know we're not going to make them inadvertently feel worse or go in a different direction? Um, you know, cause they're already may feel bad or, or, you know, they get used to us having to diurese them and they want to know, you know, how do we know we're not being too aggressive diureseing them? Right. And, and what does that look like? Um, and so I think it's per being able to monitor and provide that peace of mind, but we know that the, the quicker and earlier we get them on these therapies, the better off they'll be. And if they can maintain these therapies, the better off they'll be. And so it's really providing that peace of mind that it's okay. We're watching you. We, we, we see what's going on with your labs that uh, we can either make this titration or your dose is stable and, you know, just give it some time and you'll feel, feel good from that standpoint. Or, if they do have a decompensation for whatever reason, we're able to adjust that down and keep them on something versus taking them completely off. Because more often than not, if you stop a therapy, it is harder to get it back on board for a variety of different reasons. And so that's really where the importance of monitoring and having that trust there to help make that titration be a part of it. Now, of course, there's other factors as well, as I alluded to, cost and the process and the, the polypharmacy, et cetera. But I mean, that, that's a big component of it. So... Then you, you mentioned previously about medication failures in the community pharmacy. Um, is is that also part of um, patients uh, coming back with different kind of uh, symptoms due to the polypharmacy that they're taking? Uh, what are some of the reasons for, for that? Because uh, from your where you work, you have this whole host of tools that you use to then say, this patient has X, Y, and Z conditions. And, and, you know, these therapies, if we can get them on it and maintain them on it, would have the best, um, you know, life uh, longevity benefits for the patient. But then uh, they don't necessarily always stay under your wing in the setting that you're in. And once they go in, out into the community, someone sure. else is responsible for maintaining, you know, support to the patient. And how do you make, make sure that some of those medication, medication failures that happen in the community uh, don't necessarily happen? And how do you make sure the patient is empowered um, to continue on that journey and trust in the process? Yeah, I think a lot of heart failure, at least in the heart failure space, is teaching them self-management as well and being engaged in that process and understanding that they're just as much a part of the team as any of the rest of us are. So we empower them to understand their regimens, to ask questions, to get follow-up. I think that's the big key. And sometimes the barriers is, they need to be followed up pretty regularly, especially after we make changes to their regimen or dose titrations and, and understanding that it's important that they, they come to those. Now, that is always hard when you're trying to make titrations in a relatively quick amount of time and you need them to come back every week or every other week, et cetera, because that's additional time and effort to come and do those things. Um, but it, it's an important part of the component. Are those related to more testing, uh, Craig? Um, yeah, so and like needing to follow up? Serum creatinine, BMP, CBC, BMP, pro-NT, BMP, every couple of weeks as we monitor, in addition to doing vitals and that, that standpoint, especially during the up-titration phase. And then, of course, 
anytime there's a change in their picture, their clinical status, if they decompensated or got ill or something related to that, you'd want to check or assess those things from that standpoint. But really when you're trying to add therapies or titrate therapies and get them on board, you want to do it in a safe and effective manner or make sure that things are, are going smoothly. And then obviously periodically checking in with the patient to make sure they're not going in either either one of the directions. Or for example, if you had a diurese them or, you know, sometimes patients also do things like they'll change their diet habits for the good, for example. And they'll be like, okay, well, I'm going to cut out salt, but I'm going to substitute it with a potassium salt-based substitute. Well, that's great, but that's also additional potassium, for example, that you're adding to your diet that we need to be aware of at that particular juncture. How does that impact? Because we don't want to put you too high of a risk from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you mentioned creatinine, uh, BNP, um, electrolytes in the past as being big uh, concerns on uh, side effects. Uh, what do you do? What do you do do now? Especially, you know, do most of your patients live uh, with easy access to labs? Um, how, how does that really work? Yeah, so really it depends depends on the scenario. Either they're coming back to the clinic or the facility to get labs drawn or around the time of their appointment and either getting drawn in the clinic or via tele, telemedicine or health or, or a lab that's close to them. Uh, but that's occurring during, like I said, during that titration phase pretty regularly or, or very quickly. Or if they're transitioning out after discharge from that standpoint. Um, and then obviously, again, periodically, if they're stable or not stable. Um, and so it, it is it is a lot of lab draws and venipuncture and, and getting that information to help manage those patients. And so that's that's a part of the, the trick and the status. And then obviously, we keep up with vitals and weights and fluid status, you know, from that standpoint, because that's an important component. And what are their symptoms? How are they feeling? What are they able to do as a point of their activities. And then sometimes obviously at post discharge, home health may be engaged, right? There may be a home mm-hmm. health agency that's collecting labs and vitals from that standpoint. If you think about the future a little bit, Craig, what are some of the things that you think um, we're doing well that you'd like to do, um, that you'd like to bring, you know, into other areas in, in, in monitoring your patients and empowering your patients? Having the ability for the patient to be monitored with really out much, without much effort from them would be huge because then we could uh, adjust therapies, see what they're doing, track their progress. They wouldn't have to make additional trips or returns or visits or get acupuncturers or do whatever that may be. So a non-invasive way of, and, and it being minimally invasive that they don't realize it's happening, right, um, would be great. And then over time, I think you could really teach patients to to manage things themselves, like where they could see what's going on with their labs and do some of that work and like, okay, if giving them parameters saying, well, if your creatinine and potassium and sodium stay in this range for a week, then go ahead and double your dose and then watch it for a week and we'll watch with you remotely and see what's going on. And it'll let us know that you've doubled the dose and that you're okay. So that would be like the ultimate projection. That's why they can really harness harness the power of telemedicine just Correct. to, you know, from the from the comfort of their home, they have the data and then they can just call Correct. you, the clinical pharmacist up and say, okay, I think we're in the clear uh, and you can advise them to up titrate. No, that's really, really powerful, especially as you're dealing with so many patients across so many therapy classes. Um, there's a lot of really exciting activity in the space of pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. uh, in metabolic conditions, uh, particularly these days. Uh, one uh, class of medications you mentioned, uh, MRAs, you know, phenarinone, 
for type two di- for diabetes diabetic kidney disease has been a, a big hit, and you know there's a whole bunch of medications from Novo Nordisk. What gets you excited as a clinical pharmacist about you know the the uh, landscape of pharmaceuticals in yeah. the space that you're working in? Well, it gets me excited. There's a lot of things to help manage these patients. There, that's great. Good news and, and bad news. It's good news because there's a lot of options and a lot of things that are helpful for our patients. It's bad news because sometimes it comes at the cost of of more agents. But you know, mm. in terms of innovation, I think the ability to monitor folks is getting better. I think people are really progressing to what is it like to manage these types of patients at home versus in a hospital-based setting. Um, and then there's novel agents like there's a subcutaneous. Uh, furosemide product that is out or Lasix product that allows people to be able to get diuresis from home where they don't necessarily have to come to the hospital to get diuresis. And so that opens up the door to, to be able to manage patients at home. However, that comes with the need for monitoring and safety and, and those types of things. So I think there's just a lot of exciting and, and opportunities to, to really get patients to be able to be managed in an environment that is better for their quality of life. Meaning, because when they come to the hospital, we wake them up, you know, they don't get to walk around. They're not in their own environment. You know, it, it's better for them to recover or, or be at their, their own environment for those things. Yeah, uh, that's excellent. Lots, lots more to uncover um, on, this, uh, on this topic of pharmacy and clinical pharmacy across heart failure, uh, chronic kidney disease, um, diabetes, and all, all conditions that you And it's all important because they all overlap and they're all interacting with they each all other. They all overlap. And, and so it's you know, all this is important in all domains. So, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's always really, um, really exciting to hear about the team-based care approaches, because as you think about all these patients who have multiple comorbid conditions that are all very complex on their own right, but then they probably add more complexity to, uh, to the, to the care that needs to be provided. Um, you know, Having a team-based approach where specialists actually work together uh, with polypharmacy uh, at the, you know in a central position probably is a, an exciting yeah, and, place to work on. Yeah, and we didn't get into the landscape that you know a lot of these patients have other. We, we talked about other disease states, but even other cardiac diseases that you know AFib and other things that intertwine with them, and they all have their yeah. own challenges, and a lot of them electrolyte or serum creatinine related, et cetera, and. And so it really is, it's important to, to have that awareness and engagement. So, Yeah. And, and starting to look at patients from a holistic perspective, because you could be on all the right medications, but life happens, you Correct. know, uh, and, and little like lifestyle events uh, can, can also trigger them. So it's a very complex, uh, a complex scope of work that you're undertaking, Craig. Thank you so much for taking oh, some time, time to uncover great. that with us. I appreciate it. Uh, and as always, we recognize the importance of pharmacy in, in how these patients go through their disease states and, and are being cared for. So we commend you for all the work that you're doing. Oh, thank um, you. And we're really excited to uh, dig deeper into some of these topics later with you at some point. But for today, this has been a this is a really, really good first conversation with you on the Action Potential podcast. Thank you very much.